Welcome along to 98 Not Out. Uh, it's a big hello from the other side of the world to Ashley Gray. We've mentioned his book on the show previously. Uh, it's called The Unforgiven, about the West Indies Rebel Tour to South Africa in the 80s. Um, Ashley, first off, how are you and how are things in Australia? I'm well, thanks, uh, Brett. It's uh, just after well, 7 o'clock in the morning here, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm very fresh and uh, ready to go. Um, yeah, things here are not not at all like in uh, Britain or Europe. Um, yeah, especially related to the coronavirus. Uh, you know, we're only getting a few cases a day of infections, and uh, but even that is a cause for concern. So, so the government's been on it really, really uh, strictly from the beginning, and, and that's had a, a good effect. So we've you know we've almost eliminated um, coronavirus here. So. Um, yeah, uh, things are slowly getting back to normal and stadiums are like a quarter full and soon they'll be a half full for all the various codes of football here and cricket. So, um, Cause the summer's, yeah. the summer's just starting over there, is it? Is it springtime now? Yeah, it's springtime. Yeah, it just started sort of spring. But, um, yeah, it's been quite warm, the weather. And also, um, yeah, so you, you got all the, the football, the various football codes, um, Australian rules, rugby league, um, they're going to have their big uh, grand finals at the end of this month. So, um, yeah, things are just slowly getting back to normal. But, um, yeah, there's uh, yeah, just been a different approach here, and it's, uh, it seems to have worked. Well, well done. Well done. So let's yeah. talk about um, this book. Yeah. So you've been shortlisted on the Wisdom uh, the cricket, here. cricket Writers Club, which oh, is the, oh, yeah. all the cricket writers have their own club, don't they, of all the well-known cricket writers? Yeah. And you've been shortlisted for their book of the year, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's uh, very very chuffed about that. How did it come about? What was the uh, the process of uh, of, the, of the story? Um, well, originally I was on a uh, a tour of um, West Indies in two thousand and three when uh, Australia were touring there, and it was the last of the four test or five test series that Australia played against the West Indies, which is kind of sad because it just shows you how how far they've fallen. Um, but, um, yeah, I was, over there. I was doing a bit of reporting and also a bit of uh, a holiday as well. But I'd just been to Sabina Park for a one-dayer and um, I had the uh, press pass dangling around my neck and I was in the um, in a taxi and uh, we got to chatting about about cricket because he, he saw my pass the taxi driver and uh, yeah I, I'd heard about Richard Austin and he t- the taxi driver said well look I can take you to see Richard Austin Richard Austin was a, a two test all rounder who played in the um, late 70s but also played Lancashire League cricket um, in England um, and uh, yeah the taxi driver said that he was begging on the street and he'd be able to take me to exactly where he was in a place called Crossroads in the middle of Kingston uh, this is in Jamaica of course and um, he did and, and there was Richard he was in the gutter and uh, he was drinking rum from a an old coke bottle and he was running with a gang of sort of fellow drifters and he wanted money for cocaine anyway I, I interviewed him and um as the uh, as we talked, and we sort of got past the uh, sort of drunken ranting that he was doing, he, he was actually quite a 
a smart guy, smart and funny guy. And he said to me that the reason why he had ended up in the gutter was because he had gone to South Africa on these on these rebel tours of the uh, early 1980s. And when he came back home to Jamaica, he was uh, flush with um, cash. But um, the problem was his Jamaican countrymen no longer um, uh, tolerated him or were no longer uh, sort of um, friendly with him in the way that they had been beforehand because they had considered the fact that he'd gone to apartheid South Africa, taken about $100,000 US, that that was... Um, an act of, uh, uh, it was was traitory, really, and that, that he had taken blood money, and, um, yeah, so he was ostracised, he had all this money, but he was banned from cricket as well, and his life had just spiralled out of control. It, it, I mean, it, it was kind of a ludicrous conversation in many ways, because he was 48, and he was begging me to call um, his good friend, Kerry Packer, um, with whom he played under during World Series Cricket. And he wanted um, me to call him because he was going to come to Australia and coach New South Wales and play for them. But uh, obviously that wasn't really going to happen. But that, that was kind of the state he was in. But, you know, I could see that there was a bigger story there. And uh, over time it was in the back of my head to do it. And, and I was the first guy to, to report on Austin. And I know Michael Atherton did later and, and that he that Austin became a sort of poster boy for um, what happened to the Rebels. But... Uh, I knew that I, I was probably the only person other than Michael that, that could have written this story because uh, Richard died in 2015. And, but as I said, I knew there was a bigger story because there were obviously more guys who went on that uh, tours, on those tours, and uh, I finally got the chance to do it over the last couple of years, and, and that's why the book is, is here now. Yep. Was it just money that they went for? Or I mean, given that high-profile players such as Viv Richards... Um, and Michael Holding had been so outspoken about not going yeah. and not taking yeah. the, the blood money, to use your term. Um, in speaking to all of these these guys that went, what was your feeling? I mean, was it just a financial thing, or did, how did they put aside the views of the big stars of the game? Yeah, sure. Look, um, it was mainly financial. Um, you, you've got to remember that, uh, say, in Jamaica that um, Everton Mattis and uh, Richard Austin and, and Lawrence Rowe and, and Herbert Chang and Ray Winter, the guys who went, um, they were offered a base wage of 80000 US, which was over 60 times more than the Jamaican would expect to earn in a year. Mm. So it was money that would have set them up for life. So they were, um, yeah, it was very enticing and... and the SACU knew this, Ali Bakker knew this, and so did Joe Pomensky, that, um, you know, that, that, that these guys were coming from, often from ghetto backgrounds. Um, they had little in the way of, uh, in, in the way of um, finance, and, and they, were, um, they were really pretty much uh, there to be, they're there for the taking, I think, in a way. In, in a way that perhaps the Australian and, and English guys w weren't because they were coming from first-world countries where they were, these guys were already pretty comfortable anyway, the, the guys that went on the Australian and uh, English tours, whereas the uh, West Indian guys, um, they were they're, they're in, in, in some cases, pretty desperate states. But they, they really had only had the chance to play in Shell Shield um, and possibly also, which was only four or five games a season. Plus, if they're lucky, they got a contract in uh, one of the in one of the leagues in England. 
Um, but other than that, you know, there was some uh, sort of minor coaching jobs they could pick up in the Caribbean, but it wasn't anything at all like in Australia or um, England where you could, uh, where test players are, are revered and they go on to the next level, which is often, you know, in the commentary box or uh-huh. on, the, on the board of a company or, you know, they're, they're, they're fated, but the, these guys could not be fated in the same way. So they were um, right for the picking, I think, and uh, and that's what happens. And so w- were they conscious of, of um, the backlash? Yeah, yeah, they, they knew that they were going to cop it, but they never thought they were going to cop it so bad. That was the thing, you know, they... Um, they thought us, the English were banned for three years, we might get something similar. So when they were banned for life, that really hit home hard, and especially on someone like Richard Austin, for whom cricket was his life. You know, that's how he sort of identified himself, and that's how he had come to find happiness in his life, and all of a sudden to have that taken away and to also have the opprobrium of his um, of his uh, countrymen was something that he couldn't handle, and, and a, lot of guys, a lot of the guys couldn't handle. So, um, yeah... But they, they knew about holding and they knew about um, you know, Clive Lloyd and Viv, Viv Richards. I mean, the, the thing is about that, as um, Roland Butcher told me, and, and I, know, I know he's been on your show, mm-hmm. he said to me that, um, you know, it was it was good that um, holding and uh, Lloyd and Richards, um, that they criticised the tours and, and they were justifiably right to do so because uh, obviously apartheid was an a evil regime and there was a sense in which these guys were helping legitimise it. But by the same token, they had set it from a position of, of power and security in that these guys were legends of the game and, and they, were, they were going to be set up pretty much for life afterwards. You know, these were, um, as I said, you know, absolute legends. So it was easier for them to say that. And, and as Roland Butcher pointed out to me, w- would they have... Um, said the same things if they were in the same position as, say, um, Lawrence Rowe, whose career was sort of uh, pretty much over, or um, or Richard Austin, or, or David Murray, who who looked like he was never going to play for the West Indies again, you know, even though he was probably the best wicketkeeper that the Caribbean had ever seen. So, um, yeah, so Roland said to me, you know, would, would, uh, would Holding and... and and Lloyd and Richards have said the same things if they were in the same position. And if they had, that would have been fantastic. But we'll never know because, um, yeah, they came from a, a position of uh, sort of uh, almost prestige, you know, compared to the, these other guys who were uh, sort of on the fringes of West Indies cricket by this stage. Well, they prepared for some of the treatment they got when they arrived in South Africa. Because I know that there's, uh, there's the famous story of, of Alvin and Kelly Turan getting... Uh, yep. asked to move from his seat on a train because... Oh, yeah, Colin Croft, in fact, yeah. Yep. Oh, Colin Croft, sorry, Colin Croft. Yep. Um, who's someone that I wouldn't argue with. But, um, yeah, exactly, me neither. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, were, were they prepared for that or was that something they just thought it's it's part of, the, of, of how they're going to earn their money? Yeah, look, look for the most part, um, they were in a, in a bubble, um, you know, they were in a, in a gilded sort of bubble because they just uh, went from one um, international hotel to another. Um, they were able to go to bars. They were able to do things that your regular person of colour in South Africa wasn't able to do. And and they were almost like honorary whites. They weren't officially honor, honorary whites, but yeah. the way that they were able to move so freely... Um, 
meant that they did things that the re- a regular guy in the street could, could never hope to do. And, I mean, you know, they, they had white women in their hotels. They were, um, you know, they, they were they were fated wherever they went. You know, they, they were taken to... Um, Gold store, you know, gold jewelry stores in um, in Johannesburg, and and able to buy, you know, um, chunky uh, gold pendants, <laughs> whatever for um, you know, which were quite the thing back then, but like ten percent of, of the of the price, this kind of thing. So so they were um, they were really looked after, and 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 it was only rare that um, apartheid sort of penetrated their, their bubble, and then that Croft incident was one that one of the um, one of the times when that happened, when he was getting on a train in, uh, I think it was in Cape Town, and uh, the um, and he went onto a white carriage, as it was then, and the uh, train conductor asked him to move, uh, move to another, um, move to another carriage, and, and a, a white guy actually intervened on uh, Colin's mm-hmm. behalf, but the mere fact that this had happened to a uh, to a test cricketer of, of some renown created an in, international incident at the time, and it shone a light on what happened regularly to uh, black people every day in, in South Africa. And, um, yeah, so so it, it was, the interesting thing about that was that the SACU uh, apologised to Colin for that incident, and, and so did the government. But the government didn't apologise to the black people that happened that, that ha- that that sort of incident happened to on, on every day of their lives. So, um, yeah, there, there were, as I said, there were occasions when um, apartheid sort of snuck through and 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 it, it confronted the, the, the rebel tourists. But for the most part, as I said, they were just it, they lived in a in a bubble and they were treated like kings. And and the white crowds loved them for it. You know, actually, how easy or hard was it getting access to as many of the players you spoke to, or in finding the stories, yeah. Well, uh, it was uh, it was bloody difficult to be honest, um, and especially with someone like Colin Croft, who might pursued and pursued and pursued with emails, calls, you know, WhatsApp, anything really. Um, his friends, um, and when I finally did get to speak to him, he said, um, "The reason why I haven't answered any of your." Uh, Emails or spoken to you on the phone is because I want nothing to do with you or your project, and he just hung up after that. Um, but th- that was Colin, you know. But but you know, I expected that from him, and and that kind of confirmed his at least his public persona to me. But um, yeah, I had to the other guys, you know, because I ended up um, speaking to everyone except Sylvester Clark, who'd obviously passed away in 1999. So. So the other guys had to build their trust. You know, they, they were wary of a, a white guy who didn't really know, who, who had no real reason to be doing this story other than, um, you know, it was a part of history that hadn't been uh, tackled before and, and that I felt that these guys could find some perhaps some closure through it. But but I had to convince them that that was the case and that, that I was a uh, fair dinkum, as we say in Australia. You know, I was um, the real deal. And uh, it wasn't easy to do that because, yeah, that they, they had reason to be sceptical of me. But uh, one of the interesting things that, that actually played in my favour was um, I, I friended a couple of them on um, Facebook. And um, when I was in uh, actually travelling through the Caribbean, and I'd meet with one of the guys and I'd stick that up on Facebook. 
And then the other guys would see it and they'd see that I was actually there and I was talking to these guys. And, you know, especially when I saw Lawrence Ryan, I put that up because he was the captain of the side. And when they saw that Lawrence was, um, you know, he was uh, taking part and that he was uh, telling his story, a lot of the other guys felt more confident about it as well. But, yeah, it was uh, it was tough. And, you know, there were um, lots of times when, uh, especially in the Caribbean, you know, you, you it's a, it's a beautiful sort of holiday spot, and I'd be waking up the next day, you know, sort of uh, in, a, in a sort of case of, you know, having a bout of mild depression because, um, you know, I'd been rejected the night before by a couple of guys and, uh, you know, I was wondering where do I go with this, you know. So, so yeah, it, 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 was, it was hard, but, um, yeah, in the end, uh, I, I got most of them and, uh, you know, their stories are there, and it's great to have the rest of the world finally... Uh, you know, paying attention to these guys and what happened to them and, and how one decision when they were young men in their 20s really, um, you know, sort of uh, had massive consequences way beyond anything they could have ever imagined. Has time been a healer with all of this? I mean, I get the sense that this has been a, a sorry episode that has been swept under the carpet um, yep. for a, a long number of years. And maybe now um, it's time to have a conversation about it, and maybe these guys feel confident enough um, to give their side of it. And, and do you think, um, from the wider picture, from West Indian society or West Indian cricket, that they're, they're prepared to now be a bit more forgiving? Um, or in some ways, yeah, in some ways, yes, but uh, in other ways, no. I mean, it... it it's been difficult for me to get coverage in, in the Caribbean, um, as opposed to, say, England and Australia, where there's been a big take-up of, of, the, of the book. Um, but the uh, coverage in the, in the Caribbean has been quite sporadic. I mean, there might be other reasons for that. Obviously, uh, COVID is about. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there, there's, a, at least in some parts of the Caribbean, that there's a willingness to forgive, but the, but there's not a willingness to to forget or to um, to sort of tell these guys that, that maybe uh, we perhaps went too far in the way that we um, treated you when you came back to uh, the Caribbean, because they didn't actually commit a, a crime as such, but they have been moral criminals for... Um, pretty much uh, the rest of their lives, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I think there is, especially in, the, say, the case of um, Richard Austin, you know, he was, you know, castigated and ostracised for the majority of his life. And, and then, um, but towards the end, there was a, there was a sense among uh, people from the upper echelons of Jamaican society that perhaps uh, they'd gone too far. And, you know, that there, was, there was a sort of... Uh, sense of sympathy for his plight and for the fact that he was now living on the street. And, and, and I think the fact he, he was so in their face when he was on the street, it forced them to confront, you know, how they had uh, treated, treated the rebels, which is not to say that the rebels did not deserve the, um, the criticism they got because, uh, you know, there was, uh, there had been for so many years a, a massive and justifiable anti-apartheid sentiment in the Caribbean. And um, yeah, guys like Michael Manley, who was the Prime Minister of Jamaica in, in, the, in the 70s, 
you know, he, he got up in the UN and, and spoken out against apartheid and, uh, you know, he'd actually, um, he'd actually spruced a, um, land, sea and air boycott of, of the whole country, of all, of all of South Africa. So that goes, goes to show you how intense the feeling was there. So, um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, the guys now, some of them still carry the, the scars and, and some of them have great regrets about going because of the way it changed their lives. And uh, I, I know that recently one of them was going to, um, who, who thought he had been uh, forgiven, and I won't mention who he was, was going to run for um, uh, election in, in one, one of the Caribbean countries. And um, he... he in, in recent recent elections there, and uh, he, um, but but I was told from someone from the other side of politics that they were going to um, bring up the fact that he'd been on the rebel tours, and that would have kiboshed his um, political ambitions. So you can see that it's it's still alive there, it's still a live issue. And and Lawrence Rowe was going to be um, his name was going to be on the pavilion, the batting pavilion at Sabina Park as an honour for him. This was like nine years ago, and. Um, so the JCA, the Jamaica Cricket Association, got that happening. He came over to Sabina Park during a test match and uh, he was given the honour. But then within three months, the backlash was so extreme that uh, his name was taken down because of the fact that he had captained this tour, to these, these rebel tours, and he was thought to have um, brought shame upon his, his nation. So... Yeah, it's still it's still a live issue and uh, still continues to uh, have ramifications for all these guys, you know. Well, actually, obviously, uh, and, sorry, go on. I was about to say it's obviously a massively fascinating book for those that are into cricket and the history of. Um, available, I know it's available on Amazon and other sites as well. Is there any particular if they want to get maybe a signed copy from you or something they can get? Um, they could Facebook me. Uh, there's, there's also, I've got a Facebook um, page for for the Unforgiven, the Unforgiven by Ash, the Unforgiven Cricket Book by Ashley Gray. I think it is. But you could also Facebook me, Facebook friends, and I could get you a sign. I could sign a copy, right? Whenever you want, in the front pages there. Um, also, um, yeah, all the high street uh, bookshops in England. Um, it's all there. Amazon. You can, uh, if, if if all fails, go to Amazon. I suppose. You're always going to get something there. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much the case in, um, in England. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's readily available there, so you should be able to get it. But, yeah, feel free to um, contact me if you want to sign a copy. Happy to do it. You know? Ash, can I just um, get your thoughts on um, a parallel between the situation that you've written about and modern-day yeah. West Indian cricket, where the backdrop to me, seems quite similar in terms of the players aren't... There's no real money in cricket. Um, yep. for, for, for cricketers and for the sport, we had Clive Lloyd on a few weeks ago was yep. telling us about the the huge financial cost of um, staging international tours in the West Indies, you know, the amount they spent on travel, accommodation, etc., etc. Yep. Um, and you, you've mentioned already the, the decline of West Indian cricket Yep. over the last, say, 25, 30 years, um, coinciding with the rise of the IPL, which has just got underway again. And we've seen, you know, arguably the biggest, most talented West Indian players just forget about playing 
um, yeah. local cricket and, and chasing this whole franchise thing, whether it's IPL, Big Bash, yep. etc. Et um, w- would you draw parallels between then and now? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a poorer region and uh, because of the sort of overlay of, of, of slavery and what happened for so many years after um, after sort of uh, the liberation in the 1830s or whatever it was, you know, I mean, it's it's a hangover from that. And, and uh, these um, islands that were once um, uh, sort of... Uh, a, a big sugar in, export economies are now um, they're barely sort of tourist islands, and so they're, they're, they're still dependent on on their uh, almost on their imperial masters and, and on on Europe and the rest of the first world for um, for their income. You know, so uh, they're, they're in a so anyone who grows up there is is uh, perhaps in a position. Whereby they they can be um, tempted by the the big money that's on offer at, at the um, in the IPL. You know, if they, if they're a sportsman as such in the IPL or um, uh, in the BBL here, you know, and they're going to go for that over Test cricket, which um, doesn't offer the same remuneration. You know, um, and, and I yes, yeah, so. so yeah, I think they are. They're still ripe for exploitation. And that's kind of sad. I think one of the things that the Rebel Tours did as well was um, back in the uh, the 80s. Um, obviously, the West Indies was dominating world cricket, and it had a production line seemingly of, of fast bowlers who had come and terrorised the world. But um, I think it wasn't too bad. Sorry. The batting wasn't too bad, either. Yeah, exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. And the feeling, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah lots of all-round talent there. Um, but, but then you lost, um, uh, with with the Rebel Tours, you lost 20, 20 guys with over, you know, with almost 200 tests worth of experience who were no longer putting back into the game. And you had, you had and this is what Jeffrey Duzon said to me, you had someone like Lawrence Rowe, who was so technically beautiful and someone who would have been able to teach batsmen to play the proper way. You know, Viv Richards was the, you know, the master blaster, but he was sort of hitting across the line. He was unorthodox and he was brilliant because of that. But you also needed people who could, who could teach the, um, the, the, the way the game should be played in, in, a, in a basic kind of sense. And, and, uh, Jeffrey Dujon said to me, yeah, it was one of his biggest laments that um, Roe did go and that um, he was lost to the game because he would have been a fantastic coach, and yet he has never been asked to coach in Jamaica since because, uh, you know, he is just, his his star has fallen so far there, you know. Um, and then you had um, you had David Murray, who was, who people still say is the best keeper that uh, the West Indies ever produced. So there, there, there is a school of thought that, you know, banning the rebels and, and not ha- not not um, having all that experience being channeled back into the game was uh, at least one of the factors in why the West Indies um, uh, slowly began to taper off. You know, by by the sort of early nineties. You know, even England were winning tests against the West Indies. <laughs> you know, a, a bloody great shock, I've got to say. <laughs> so I don't know whether that that, that necessarily um. um 
you know, uh, it is a valid argument, but I think there's, there's something to it, you know. Actually, thank you very much for your time. We'll just remind everybody, the book is called The Unforgiven, Mercenaries or Missionaries. It's about what it looks like. Oh, there you go. It's about the Rebel West Indies tours to South Africa in the 80s, available from all good bookstores. And if they do want to get in touch with you, get via Facebook and uh, you'll, you'll sort them out a signed copy. Or get a copy. Yeah, I can also go um, by Twitter. My um, handle is uh, AshG66, A-S-H-G-66. So they can um, follow me there and I'll follow them and we can we can chat. No worries. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate being on the show. Um, Fantastic.